Hello and welcome to another episode of the Pig X Podcast. I'm your host, Delaney Howell. Today we're taking things back to heat stress as we focus on the effect sex plays, particularly in the role of heat stress. Heat stress losses continue to erode the U.S. swine industry's profitability at an accelerating rate. According to Dr. Steve Pullman, the vice president of Smithfield Hogs Production Division, he estimates that heat stress costs the U.S. swine industry over $900 million each year. Now, of those losses, $450 million happen within the grow-finish stage, and the other $450 million plus happen in the breeding herd. That's why research continues to focus on this vital topic. Today's episode is part two of our four-part series. And to help us identify some of the effects heat stress has when looking at sex specifically is Dr. Josh Selsby, a professor at Iowa State University. Josh and his research are part of a larger grant, specifically related to a U.S. Department of Agriculture NEFA grant that is part of the Interdisciplinary Engagement in Animal Systems. Josh Selsby, the PI for the current grant, shares a bit more about what the research will aim to accomplish and why they chose to focus specifically on heat stress. It's one of those few things that impacts the animal systemically, and then also you can explore each tissue with with extraordinary depth. And for me, muscle is the most exciting tissue. And so it was a natural marriage of idea and opportunity. And I was, we we're fortunate enough to be awarded the grant to pursue it. Deliberately, there are some basic biological questions that we'll be addressing and some applied questions that we'll be addressing. And then we have an extension component to help share our results with producers. So the, the first part of the grant is a fairly intensive experiment where we're focused on a select number of animals and asking some really in-depth biological questions about how heat stress is affecting separately barrows and gilts, um, their muscles and endocrine systems and a variety of other uh, variables that we're interested in, including a, a whole a whole slew of production metrics. And then in the second phase of the grant, what we're doing is scaling up to production level outcomes where we're interested in asking the question at the production level, at the systems level, do we actually see changes in biological sex um, in terms of production metrics? And then the last part of the grant is focused specifically with sharing our research outcomes with producers. Josh, now that we have a good understanding of the research and how the grant was put together, let's dive into understanding a little bit more of your background and specifically how you got into heat stress. My background is actually in human performance and my, my PhD is in exercise physiology and I went on for a postdoc to specialize in muscle biology. And when I came to Iowa State, it was actually um, to focus primarily on a disease called Duchenne muscular dystrophy, uh, even though I was housed in the animal science department. But it didn't take me long while being here. Uh, hired about the same time I was, was Lance Baumgard, who of course is, is world-renowned and is a fantastic um, nutritionist and physiologist who's been working in the heat stress world for quite a while. And we got to talking about all the different changes that take place in animals during heat stress. And I just found the whole thing quite interesting. You know, yes, of course, there, there's heat, but there's also decreased food intake and the intestines don't work quite, quite right. There's inflammation, there's endocrine changes, and there's nutrient changes. And just the whole thing really sets the stage for muscle to be really, really unhappy. And so we had the opportunity to add on to one of the studies that he was doing and that Gabler was doing at the time. And we pulled some muscle and we just 
started asking just some very, very simple questions. And some of our questions were, so were supported or our hypotheses were supported. And from there, I was off and running, just asking all kinds of questions about how heat stress impacts skeletal muscle. Josh, I know there's also a lot of other key players that are part of this heat stress grant and heat stress series. Who are some of the other partners throughout this project? Yeah, our work is supported um, by USDA and certainly, I won't say assisting, but uh, contributing significantly to the project um, is Dr. Lance Bumgard. And Nick Sorrell was part of our project, and unfortunately, he left Iowa State, and we have now recruited Juan Steibel, who is going to help us um, with some big data analysis and interpretation. Brett Ramirez is conducting a whole series of ventilation-type experiments, so he's interested in what are different barn conditions that, that can be set to actually maximize cooling. Lee Schultz will be calculating the economic impact of heat stress in barrows and gilts, and Jason Ross also from Iowa State, is leading our extension effort. So an essential component of this grant is actually not just to conduct the research, but also share this work. And so this, this podcast is an extension of that effort, but we're also going through great pains to, to visit with producers and to share our work with the extension agents so that um, we can get broader distribution of, of this knowledge. Um, we're also... Rob Rhodes is at Virginia Tech and is doing some great work with some really fundamental cell biology with barrows and gilts. And just asking the question, might there be circulating factors that are driving some of these differences in muscle? Or is this something that's actually inherent to the muscle? And all this fantastic um, mitochondrial work was headed to say an M University. And I would be remiss if I didn't also mention Tori Rudolph, who's the graduate student who's been heading a lot of this biochemical work and histological work at Iowa State for us. So tell us about some of the research that you have done to date that led you to this latest grant uh, that's part of the Pig Livability Project. Sure. So the, the first questions we asked were simple ones. Might there be inflammatory signaling in skeletal muscle? Might there be oxidative stress in skeletal muscle? And it turned out we were, we were half right. So there was oxidative stress, but there was no inflammatory signaling. So oxidative stress is essentially the cells producing free radicals. And these, these little free radicals, you can think of them as going and attacking proteins and amino acids and, and lipids. And when, they, when they're under attack, they don't, they don't work correctly. And so you can't build your proteins the way that you'd like to build them and the, or the proteins that are built become kind of unfolded. So they lose their three-dimensional shape and they can't, they can't do their jobs very well. So all that worked out great. And then we started asking questions about why might that be? Um, where, what is the source of the free radicals? And so we, we considered that mitochondria might be going bad. We considered some other parts of the cell that may not be working appropriately. We tried other mechanisms, but we were, we were really focused primarily on this idea that oxidative stress could be a major driver of some of the dysfunction that we're seeing. Um, so that's, that's really where we, we hung our hat. And so the experiment that was really pivotal for us was using what's called, was a mitochondrially targeted antioxidant. So this is, if free radicals and oxidants are bad, you can think of antioxidants as, as the good guys, as the heroes. So we had one um, that was targeted to the mitochondria. And this is where we think the, the free radicals are being produced. And in, we failed with spectacular fashion. It's, the, it's, an, it's unfortunate in science when you're not right, but if you're not gonna be right, you wanna be really wrong. So it's really, really clear that was us. It was 
a colossal failure. But the problem was we couldn't even detect oxidative stress in our control groups. And this is, this is the problem because this is a huge problem for us because we have built at this point, years of research on this idea that heat stress causes oxidative stress in skeletal muscle. And now here's an instance where we can't detect it. And so I had to go through my requisite pouting period and really think about what might be different about this round versus the previous experiments that we had done. And so one of the things that finally occurred, not just to me, but to my lab group, um, was that in this experiment, we happened to use barrows, but in all the other work we had done, we had used gilts. And we, we asked the question, is it possible, just possible that biological sex is playing a role on how heat stress is experienced by muscle and by these animals? That led you then, I assume, to pursuing this grant, or was there something else that happened in the interim that that made you decide to apply for the grant? No, this was that was it. It it was the realization that these were these were barrows, and we'd always used gilts. And then the other the other piece was that we actually had some old tissue laying around from some of our earliest work, and we were able to compare the changes in our oldest tissue. Uh, in gilts with our newest tissue that happened to be in barrows. And we found the same thing. So in our older, oldest tissues, we found oxidative stress. And then in our newest tissues, we didn't. And so it gave us some confidence that at a minimum, there's a difference with free radical production or oxidative stress. Um, So we actually, yeah, we wrote this grant to USDA and fortunately they supported it. And they allowed us then to compare barrows and gilts during heat stress in the same room at the same time. So we can make genuine head-to-head comparisons. So Josh, as you started digging into this research, what happens to the pig, the whole animal during heat stress? And what was the difference between what you saw with barrows and gilts? That's a good question. So on the whole, if you look at the animal, both barrows and gilts, they're experiencing roughly the same thing and they look very, very similar. Of course, they're hot and Pigs, when they're, they're hot, they, there's some behavior changes that take place. So in this case, they're on concrete floors, so they sprawl out and they lay there. They're, they're trying to expose as much body surface area to the floor as possible. So they have decreased uh, physical activity. They pant to, to increase um, cooling, which means diaphragmatic contractions. So contractions of the diaphragm actually goes way up. So we, most of their muscles are what you might consider sedentary but in the diaphragm you have increased activity, which may actually be an interesting comparison to make. They're they're eating less food. We know that there's changes in blood distribution. Blood is sequestered to the periphery to allow cooling. It's being pulled away from other core organs. There's changes in endocrine signals. There's changes in circulating nutrients. We know that there's changes, the reduction in intestinal barrier function or compromised intestinal barrier function. So in, in essence, the the stuff that's on the inside of the intestine is able to leak into the vasculature, leak into circulation. We call that leaky gut. There's an immune response, and it may actually be directly due to a change in intestinal barrier function. Yes, we know that the muscle is damaged, and we've studied that in, in, in detail. We're learning lots and lots of stuff about that. We just published a paper, it was just accepted a couple of weeks ago, um, a talented graduate student, her name is Missy Roth, sorry, roast, (laughs) Um, just published um, a paper where there's damage in the myocardium. So the hearts are actually damaged. And what's really cool is she did a deeper dive and figured out that the right ventricle 
is not damaged the same way that the left ventricle is. She also figured out that the kidneys are damaged. And I'm certain that if you had a, another organ specialist on here, they would tell you there's, there's a host of other changes that take place. For example, there, there's problems with the ovary. There's problems with the testes. There's, the list, I'm sure, goes, goes on and on. When it comes to some of those specific organ issues that are affected because of heat stress, obviously testes and ovaries, male and female, obviously have very specific parts for that. But is there also specific things that we see have happened in non-gender parts because of heat stress? Yes, I will say yes. So certainly we know in muscle, and this is where I can answer with what I think is fantastic detail, but you might find horrific detail. Um, Sex-specific changes that are, that are happening in skeletal muscle due to the exact same heating environment. We have not been able to determine yet if that the same things are occurring in hearts or the same things are occurring in kidneys. But we do know that in, in skeletal muscle, there are sex-specific changes. And so we, so we did our experiment. We had barrows and gilts in the same hot room at the same time for one day or for seven days. And they're all together. So it allows us to actually have a really, really good comparison because we don't have to worry about different heating times or different subtleties that could be happening in the room that we can't control. And what we figured out was that, again, superficially, they look pretty similar. The hot pigs laid down, they breathed hard. Um, of course, there was changes in some in blood distribution, et cetera. But what was really cool is at 24 hours, so one day into our heating experiment, they were at the same temperature, the same rectal temperature. But as heating continued through seven days, what we found was that the barrows maintained that exact same temperature. The gilts actually got cooler over the course of the seven days, such that by seven days, they were cooler than at 24 hours, and they were cooler than the seven-day barrows, which is interesting all by itself. And we don't have a good explanation as to exactly why that is. But when we actually considered then growth efficiency, so gain to feed, what we saw was that at 24 hours, so this is when Barrows and gilts are at about the same temperature. Barrows were actually a bit more efficient than were the gilts. And as we extend through to seven days, it looks as though efficiency is about the same. And again, this is when gilts are actually cooler than barrows. So barrows are able to maintain a growth efficiency despite an elevated core temperature. So it looks as though they're, they might be a more re heat resistant sex. And then when we got into muscle, and this is where things got exciting for us because we wanted to know what might be the, the impetus to support that level of that phenotypic level of change. So what we saw, we, we did an experiment, a technique called metabolomics, which essentially lets us peek inside the muscle and see the sum total of all the enzymatic reactions. And what we saw was wild differences between barrows and gilts during heat stress. And at 24 hours, the gilts looked a whole lot different than thermoneutral, and they looked a whole lot different than the, the heat stressed barrows. So that gave us, okay, so the metabolism is messed up. And then we looked at mitochondrial function. Uh, and what we saw with mitochondrial function was that at, at 24 hours or so, both of them have, both barrows and gilts have impaired mitochondrial function, but the way that they're breaking and the way that the mitochondria are becoming dysfunctional over time was such that the gilts are relying on a, on a process that produces free radicals whereas the barrows are relying on a process that doesn't. And so that supports this idea then of differences in metabolism, difference then in mitochondrial function. And then what we did is we brought some muscle over to the electron microscope facility 
and we actually got a chance to look at the mitochondria themselves. And the, and the mitochondria from the gilts formed these massive structures that were that were way too big, just way too big to be to be there. But they sure enough they existed. They don't function very well when they look like that. And we didn't see that in the barrows. And that was at 24 hours. And as you progress forward to seven days, um, the barrows and gilts start to look more similar to each other. Um, we didn't see this big mitochondria anymore. Um, but still, the residual effects of having those massive mitochondria were persistent. You could still see some of the, bio, the biochemical signatures of these massive structures. So clear differences between the muscles from barrows and gilts, which to me, as a muscle nerd, is super exciting. So yeah, I'm sure that was probably fun. You got to nerd out a little bit on doing some of that and seeing some of those results. But Josh, you've been throwing around a lot of scientific terms for us. Free radicals, mitochondria. Give us the layman's definitions of these terms to put it in some context for us. So free radicals um, effectively are these things with unpaired valence electrons that will go and steal electrons from other molecules from other atoms. And when they do that, it will change the way that that atom interacts with the rest, the rest of them around, the rest of the atoms it's associated with. And in doing so, it will change the way that that altered interaction then will change the way the larger structure it's part of behaves. So in the case of protein, protein needs to be folded in the right three-dimensional shape in order to function. You can imagine crunching up a piece of paper. And as you look at that piece of paper, it's got all kinds of nooks and crannies. Well, those nooks and crannies are structurally important to how that protein functions. And in the case of free radical injury, it would be essentially like unfolding one of those nooks or crannies. So it doesn't exist anymore. And so now that protein can no longer use that nook or cranny in order to function. Um, in the case of mitochondria, mitochondria are is this wonderful little organelle that produces ATP. Um, it does it in a highly, highly efficient way under healthy conditions. And yes, there's a little bit of free radical produced under normal circumstances, uh, but when mitochondria become damaged, they actually just start to mass produce free radicals and heat, which is really bad during heat stress. So you have these, these mitochondria now producing free radicals and producing heat, and so they're producing less ATP. And you can think of ATP essentially as cellular cash. If you, want, if you want a pump to work, it costs you some ATP. If you want protein synthesis to, to take place, that costs you some ATP. Every single cellular function will cost you some ATP. So you've got to constantly be producing it. So you mentioned the antioxidants. Can you tell us more about that test and what actually happened? So it, in the pig experiment, this is where we figured out that this is where we, we tested it in Barrows and it failed, it failed spectacularly. This is where we could not generate oxidative stress even in our untreated animals. So there was just, they were just heat stressed animals. And again, our bread and butter has been heat stress causes oxidative stress in skeletal muscle. And under these particular circumstances, it didn't happen. And so now we have the problem of not, we can't fix what's not broken. So with these Barrows that we treated, there's no oxidative stress that we could detect. And so therefore applying an antioxidant won't work. Now, might applying an antioxidant to guilt work? That possibility exists. And that's something that we are, we are eager to consider. 
So as you look at, you've mentioned a couple other things that are areas to consider, but what other research do you think is needed within specifically how sex affects heat stress? Yes. So we are building toward this idea that that this matters, that there's a, a practical outcome here. Um, right now, we can say with a fair degree of certainty that under our intensive study, there's differences between how heat stress affects barrows and gilts. One of the things we are keen to do is collect production level data. So big production system level data and answer this question. Are there differences at the production level between barrels and gilts during heat stress? We have some preliminary data that says yes, um, that are actually quite supportive of what we found uh, under our intensive conditions. But this needs to be tested you know, with hundreds of thousands, if not millions of animals. So we can really, really do a good job addressing this. And then from there, we can calculate the economic impact of heat stress. And is it different between barrows and gilts? And I think what we're going to find is that, again, yes, there's a difference between barrows and gilts. And I think we're going to find that there's a larger economic window of correction for gilts, such that it's worth investing in therapeutics. And from there, it, it may even alter, you know, husbandry practices or production system management practices, where you might favor single-sex housing so that you can then deploy different ventilation conditions, for example, in barns to cool gilts to maximize production efficiency or to a, provide a therapeutic to gilts. Or maybe you could route um, gilts to the north where it is cooler and barrows further south and within a massive production system. These are all experiments that, that I would love to try. So I guess with that being said, how what can you actually do to I mean, we've talked about what you can do to reduce heat stress, but is, is there anything you can do to actually reduce heat stress and the effect it has on their bodies, on their GI tract, on their muscles, et cetera? That's a great question. That's what we're building toward. So we thought we understood enough about the free radical aspect of, of heat stress to provide an intelligent solution. That was our idea of a mitochondrially targeted antioxidant. And unfortunately that wasn't successful. And right now we're still kicking around data and kicking around ideas. Was it a mismatch of problem and solution or is it more complicated than that? Might it have been the exact right solution but a poor delivery method? And one of the things that we've recently discovered is that there's a slowing of passage through the GI tract. And in fact, a lot of the food actually gets stuck inside the stomach which is fine, it's in the animal, but unfortunately the stomach is not where the absorptive machinery is. That, that happens in the small intestine. So if the food is trapped inside the stomach and it's not available for absorption, um, our delivery approach won't work, or at least that delivery, that, that delivery of that particular therapeutic won't work. So we need to come up with something else, something that would be released from the stomach or something that could easily penetrate the GI tract or be absorbed um, that, that might be viable. And there's a, there's a host of products that people, people are selling and, and we've seen marketed that appear to be promising. And so I think the, our understanding of GI physiology and of heat stress biology is not complete. And that's something that we will continue to work toward, continue to try to address. So it sounds like a lot of questions, but what about answers? What are some things I mean that, you know, people sitting at home listening that work in the swine system that manage animals day to day or that manage operations day to day? What's something that they can consider that's 
that's that we know is researched and proven as kind of like a take-home message, if you will, Josh. Sure. So there's there's no question that heat stress is right now a problem for, for swine production. No question. It, it costs the industry nearly a billion dollars a year. And that's in the United States where we have the infrastructure and we have the where the economic resources to actually deploy, develop and deploy even ventilation strategies that aren't available in, in other places. Now, our expectation is that because we're seeing more frequent, more severe and longer duration heat events, and we're still improving the, the standard production pig, it's getting fat, it's growing faster. And when it grows faster, it produces more metabolic heat. So the combination of a faster growing animal with longer, hotter summer events, heat events, is likely a greater instance of heat stress. And if it's happening more often and it's happening for a longer duration, the economic consequence is going to be greater. That's, that's why people should care. This is something that is currently a problem and it's going to become a bigger problem. The question is, what do we do about it? And what our research is telling us is that we need to consider barrows and gilts separately. That even though they might look pretty similar, there's actually some pretty fundamental differences about them that may impact the way that they're managed during heat stress conditions. It may be that gilts need to be looked after in a more intensive way. It may be that they need ventilation conditions such that they're cooler than barrows. Those are the kinds of things that I think could have a big impact moving forward. Well, listeners, that does it for another great episode here on the Pig X Podcast. But don't worry, our four-part mini-series on heat stress continues next month. Until then, I'm Delaney Howell, and this has been the Pig X Podcast. Pig X is a national podcast hosted by the Pig Livability Project partners at Iowa State University, Kansas State University, and Purdue, and supported by the Iowa Pork Industry Center. For more information on the project, head to www.piglivability.org or to inquire directly with questions regarding the project, email ipic at iastate.edu. Big X. Ideas in the swine industry worth sharing.